Hi guys, welcome to Talks with Abna. On today's episode, we'll be discussing Jennifer Nasumbuga Makumbi. We will be talking about her life, her books, and her achievements. Jennifer Nasumbuga Makumbi was born in Kampala, Uganda in 1967. She did a Bachelor of Arts degree in education, majoring in teaching English and literature at, at the Islamic University in Uganda. She went on to teach in the country until 2001. In September that same year, she joined Manchester Metropolitan University to do a Master of Arts in Creative Writing. First published in Kenya by Kiwani Trust in 2014, Makumbi's debut novel, Chintu, won the Kiwani Manu Manuscript Project in 2013 and was long listed for the 2014 Etisalat Prize. Though she won the 2013 Kiwanu Manuscript Award, a prestigious Kenyan prize, Chintu was rejected by UK publishers. To put it bluntly, they said the book was too African to be relatable to their audiences. Makumbi had to decide to either rewrite it for a Western audience or to stick to her conviction that a book about Uganda written for Ugandans is relatable to the world. Thankfully, she chose the latter. Makumbi went on to publish three more books and saw Chintu, the so-called problem book, become a global success. The Kiwani's edition of Chintu started experiencing some problems, which prompted the author to withdraw the rights of the novel and consequently sell it to One World Publications. Chintu is a modern classic, a multi-layered narrative that reimagines the history of Ugandan through a cursed bloodline of Chintu clan. Divided into six sessions, the novel begins in 1750 when Chintu Kada sets out for the capital to pledge allegiance to the new leader of the Ugandan kingdom. Along the way, he unleashes a curse that will plague his family for generations. In an ambitious tale of clans and a nation, Makumbi weaves together the story of Chintu's descendants as they seek to break from the burden of their shared past and reconcile the inheritance of tradition in the modern world that is their future. The first reading is from Chintu by Jennifer Nasumbuga Makumbi. Chintu was on his way to Lubia to pay homage to Chabagu, the new Kabaka. Chabagu had grabbed a throne and announced Lubia Hill as the new capital, claiming that Namugala had abdicated. No one believed him. The Bakaba did not give away their thrones like that. Until Namagula was pronounced dead, the kingdom stood on its toes with apprehension. Chintu was traveling with a modest entourage of 25 men, chosen and led by his headsman, entrusted guard, Indo. All the men were warriors. Chintu did not know what to expect of Chabagu, but taking a large group of Bamboa was reckless. In any case, if Chabagu wanted to slay him, the men would not be able to protect him. As a new Kabaka, who had recently plucked the throne from his own brother, Chabagu would be jittery. Chintu was not surprised that Chabagu had toppled his own mother's child. Normally, the mother was a binding force among sons. But then again, royals were hardly normal. 
These were terrible times to be of royal birth. Kings and princes lived, their short, lived the shortest lives. Any prince could stake claim to the throne at any time. The victor often massacred his siblings and his cousin. Clever women did not declare their sons as princes. Cleverer women watched the throne and alerted their sons when it was ripe for seizure. In his service as Pokinu, Chintu had, served, had so far served five kings. He remembered Kagulu, the first Kabaka he served. In a short reign, Kagulu has slaughtered more subjects than goats. In the quarter Lichiku, the parliament sessions, governors watched their breath. Kagulu turned like the Nulabele Lake, now serene, now agitated, now deadly, now laughing. The gods deserted Kagulu after he put his half-brother, Musanje, to death for killing another brother, Lunyenje, while wrestling. Fearing for their life, Musanje's brother, the ones he shared with his mother, fled, led by their elder sister, Nansolo, and taking Musanje's little boys as well. When Chintu next came for Lichiko, Kagulu's palace at Bilozo was airy silent. It was as if Kagulu was aware that his days were numbered. No one knew where Nasolo and her siblings had fled, but everyone knew that she was a wrathful princess. Soon after Chintu returned to Buddha, news arrived that Buluzu was under siege. Nasolo was back, rumbling like a chiira. The now. Kagulu fled and Nusulu pursued him. Kagulu was as, was as swift as a cob on savannah, but Nusolo was relentless. She wanted his jawbone. For a time, Kagulu hid in ditches and caves in Buto region. When he was captured, Kagulu, who had put masses to the spear, would not face his own death like a man. Mercifully, Nasulu had him drowned. Nasulu then installed the softly, softly older brother, Chikulwe, as Kabaka. Chintu knew right away that Chikulwe would not last. History showed that kings who fought for the throne kept it longer than those who merely received it. And Chikulwe was naive. As if it would heal the kingdom, he brought music and merriment. He danced too far, too long from his throne, and his brother, Mawanda, snatched it. Chintu laughed as he remembered Mawanda's excuse. Apparently, the gentle Chikulwe had dug a stag pit to kill him. Mawanda's reign, though longer and more prosperous, was dogged by rumors sceptical of his royal heritage. Eventually, Musanje's three sons, the ones that he and Nasolo had fled with disposed Mawanda. Kintu sagged his teeth. Mawanda had brought up the boys by himself. Then these three vipers went on to succeed each other in madness. The eldest, Moanga, lasted only nine days as ruler, despite sacrificing a maternal cousin to guarantee a long reign. The cousin's enraged father killed him before his buttocks even warmed the throne. 
As Chintu set off to pay homage to Moanga, Namugala, the second viper, was planning his own elaborate coronation at Nagalabi. During Namugala's eighth year reign, there was peace and quiet, but Chabagu, the youngest viper, was restless. Now he had pounced. Chintu sighed, abduction indeed, the way the monarch took subject for fools. Chintu put the instability of Buganda's throne down to the women. Unlike commoners, a Kabaka's children took after their mother's clan. Though this ensured the distribution of Kabaka ship to the different clans in Buganda, the custom bestowed immense power to King's mother, the Namasole. To protect their position, incumbent king mothers encouraged brothers to inherit the throne. The three vipers shared a mother, Nabuya. Ruthlessly ambitious, Nabuya had sold yearning for the throne in all three young princes. Chintu saw her hand in the malicious slander questioning Mawanda's royal lineage. But what had she gained? Mawanga was dead. Namugala was exiled, probably dead too, and Chibagu was bound to die the same way. Chintu suspected that Na Nabalia, who had held rivaling courts during Namugala's reign, had feared that half-brothers would easily dispose her weak son and orchestrated the abdication story. In Chabugu, Nabalia had a third chance to be a king mother. Chintu shook his head. Nabalia reminded him of his wife, Bibiri. If only royals look beyond beauty in their choice of women, perhaps the throne would be more secure. But then royals were not renowned for their mental prowess. He saw no end to the bloodshed. In spite of all that, Chintu could not wait to get to Lubia and see the royal madness that would be Chabagu. In 2014, Makumbi won the Commonwealth Short Prize story for her story, Let's Tell the Story Properly. In her acceptance speech, Makumbi stated, For Uganda, once described as a literary desert, it shows the country's literary landscape is changing, and I am proud to be part of it. Granta Literary Magazine printed her story, Let's Tell the Story Properly, in 2014, which later went on to become the title story of Manchester Happened. Her Let's Tell the Story Properly is about a Ugandan woman named Nam who lives in Manchester and finds that her 45-year-old husband has died shamefully in the bathroom with his pants down on Easter. As Nam travels back to Uganda to organize his funeral, she is stunned to discover a web of deception. Described by Makumbi, as a tale of imagination and home, her writing relies heavily on grander oral traditions, especially myth, legend, folk tales, and saying. Her second book is a collection of short stories, Manchester Happened for UK Commonwealth Publication, and Let's Tell the Story Properly for US Canada Publication. The book came out in spring of 2019. Manchester Happened, or Let's Tell the Story Properly, was shortlisted for the Big Book Prize, Harper's Bazaar. 
told with empathy, humor, and compassion. Manchester happened, or let's tell the story properly, has stories that reimagine the journey of Ugandans who choose to make England their home. Weaving between Manchester and Kampala, this dazzling collection will captivate anyone who has ever wondered what it means to truly belong. She was awarded the prestigious Wenhan Campbell Prize for Fiction in 2018. The second reading for Manchester Happened by Jennifer Nasumbuga Makumbi is by Amber, Na Ache, and Prince Henry. Ugandans rallied around her during the first week of Kaita's death. The men took over the mortuary issues. The women took care of their home. Nam floated between weeping and sleeping. They arranged the funeral service in Manchester and masterminded the, fun the fundraising drive, saying, we are not burying one of us in snow. Throughout the week, women worked shifts sleeping at Nam's house, looking after their children, then going to work. People brought food and money in the evening and prayed and sang. Two of her friends took leave and bought tickets to fly back home with her. It was when she was buying the tickets that she wondered where the funeral would be held back at home. As their house had tenants, she rang and asked her father. He said that Kaita's family was not forthcoming about the funeral arrangement. Not forthcoming, evasive. But why? They are peasants, Namiya. You knew that when you married him. Nam kept quiet. Her father was like that. He never liked Kaita. Kaita had neither the degrees nor the right background. Bring Kaita home. We'll see when you get there, he finally said. As soon as she saw Kaita's family at Entebbe Airport, Nam knew that something was wrong. They were not the brothers she had met before, and they were unfriendly. When she asked her family where Kaita's real family was, they said, that's the real family. Nam scratched her chin for a long time. There were echoes in her ears. When the coffin was released from customs, Kaita's family took it, loaded it on the van they had brought, and drove off. Nam was mouth open, shocked. Do they think I killed him? I have the postmortem documents. Postmortem? Who cares? Perhaps he was ashamed of his family. Nam was beginning to blame her father's snobbery. Perhaps they think we are snobs. She got into one of her family's cars to drive after Kaita's brothers. No, not snobbery. Mia, Nam's eldest brother said quietly. Then he turned to Nam, who sat in the back seat, and said, I think you need to be strong, Namia. Instead of asking, what do you mean? Nam twisted her mouth and clenched her teeth as if anticipating a blow. Kaita is, was married. He has the two older children he told you about. But in the few times he returned, he had two other children with his wife. Nam did not react. Something stringy was stuck between her lower front teeth. Her tongue, irritated, kept poking at it. Now she picked at it with her thumbnail. We only found out when he died, but father said we should wait to tell you until you were home with family. In the car were three of her brothers, all older than her. 
Her sisters were in another car behind. Her father and the boys were in another. Uncles and aunts were in yet another. Nam was silent. Another brother pointed at the van with the coffin. We need to stop them and ask how far we are going in case we need to fill the tank. Still, Nam remained silent. She was a kiwudududu, a dismembered torso, no feelings. They came to Indiba runabout, and the van containing the coffin veered into Masaka Road. In Indiba town, near the timber shacks, they overtook the van and flagged it down. Nam's brothers jumped out of the car and went to Kaita's family. Nam still picked at the irritating something in her teeth. Indiba was wrapped in the moldy smell of half-dried timber and sawdust. Heavy planks fell on each other and rumbled. Planks being cut sounded like a lawnmower. She looked across the road at the petrol station with its car wash and smiled. You need to be strong, Namiya, as if she had an alternative. How far are we going? Mia asked Kaita's brothers. We might need to fill the tank. Only to Insangi. One of them replied. Don't try to lose us. We shall call the police. The van drove off rudely. The three brothers went back to the car. They are taking him to Insangi. I thought your house in Insangi was rented out. Like a dog pricking its ears. Nam sat up. Her eyes moved from one brother to the other to another, as if the answer were written on their faces. Give me father on the phone, she said. Mia put the phone on speaker. When their father's voice came, Nam asked, Father, do you have the title deeds of the house in Insangi? They are in the safe deposit. Are they in his name? Am I stupid? Enam closed her eyes. Thanks, Father. Thanks, Father. Thanks. Thank you. He did not reply. When was the last rent paid? Three weeks ago. Where are you? Don't touch it, Father, she said. We are in Deba. We are not spending any more money on this funeral. His family will bury him. I don't care whether they stuff him into the hole. They are taking him to Insangi. Insangi? That doesn't make sense. Not to us either. When Inam switched off the phone, she said to her brothers, the house is safe, as if they had not heard. Now they can hold the vigil in a cave if they please. The brothers did not respond. When we get there, there was a life in Inam's voice now. You will find out what's going on. I will be in the car. Then you will take me back to town. I need to go to a good saloon and pamper myself. Then I will get a good basuti and dress up. I am not a widow anymore. Makumbi's third book, The First Woman, for UK Commonwealth Publication, and A Girl is a Body of Water, for US-Canada Publication, came out in 2020. Makumbi was two years old, when, she, when her parents separated, she would not meet her mother again until she was 10, living with her grandfather until she was four and later with an aunt. Her own early life is an inspiration behind the first woman. The impact of Idi Amin's regime was a very personal one for her. 
Her father, who was a banker, was arrested and tortured. And although he survived the ordeal, he sadly spent the rest of his life suffering from mental illness. When asked why she introduced readers to indigenous feminism, that predates Western feminism by the garden, Makumbi stated, this was a major intention on my part. It is all recorded in our folk tales and our oral tradition. Feminism is failing to take hold in Uganda because of the discrepancy between middle class and working class women. If feminism isn't making headway in Uganda, let's go back and look at what our grandmothers left behind. In order to explore women's oppression, I had to go back to the very beginning and explore how women had been repressed. The first woman reconstituted feminism as an African concept by centering a Bugandan myth in a powerful story about a community of African women who shaped the course of history. She assembles a brilliant archive of folklore, mythology, and historical records to show that African women have always had a rich language for, for talking about and resisting patriarchy. What echoes through Makumbi's literary achievement is the power to shift perspective. Chintu, for instance, sparked a global conversation about the politics of storytelling. Who do African writers write for? How does their imagined audience impact the work? How do we push back against market forces designed to exploit the single story? Every book she has published has pushed the boundary on what counts as a universal story. The third reading is from The First Woman by Jennifer Nasumboga Makumbi. In Suta, shook her head the way grown-ups surrender to manipulative children. How does one tell the story of our original state? From the beginning, Insuta reached for Chirabo's hand and entwined it with hers. In the beginning, Chin, you were our eyes. For Chirabo, storytelling ethic had to be observed. Humans were mere residents of the earth. We did not own it. We did not rule it. We shared it equally with plants, insects, birds, and animals. But then one day, our Asians realized that they could be more. They could own the earth and reign over it. Do you know what they did? No. They made up stories. Stories Chirabo had imagined war. Yes, stories that justified our dominion. First, they came up with Chintu and made him the first human on earth. And what does being the first mean? Winner and leader. Oh, and the owner. Exactly. The first son is heir. The firstborn has power. Even the first wife yields power. Here in Buganda, we created Chintu, who married Nambi, and they brought all plants and creatures to earth from heaven. Europeans created Adam and Eve, then claimed that their God apparently created everything and gave them the earth to name and to rule. There are similar stories around the world that justify human dominion. Through these stories, humans gave themselves so much, so much power they could destroy the world if they wish. Destroy the earth? How? When I was young, there were wild fruits, vegetables, yams, and other plants all over this place. 
but they no longer exist because people cleared miles and miles of the land to make way for chambers of cash crops brought over by the Europeans. Thousands and thousands of plant species replaced by two, coffee and cotton. Soon, little animals and insects that live in the soil will disappear too. Put like that, humans were despicable. As a result of these stories, humans grab territory. This hill is mine. That plane is ours. Creatures which could not fight back were tamed and locked up. Those that resisted were hunted down. In Suta's side, catastrophe. But then one day, male Asians said, Women, stop. You cannot join in. Why? In Suta stood up. Why is where we start the next time? You cannot stop there, Insuta. It is going to kill me. It is like giving water to a thirsty person, but taking it away when they've only had one little tiny sip. Heaven was the world of gods, yes. The underworld is where the dead begins new life, yes, yes. If land belongs to a man, what is left? The sea, aha. The sea, the Asians claimed, was the woman's realm. What? Women belonged in water, and if they did, they could not share in the land wealth, could they? If you want property, they told women Asians, go back to your sea and grab to your heart's content. Ye, ye, even when they saw baby girls born the same as boys, they claimed that the very first woman rose out of the sea while the first man emerged from the earth. But that's not true. Nambi was Gulu's daughter. She came from heaven. Gulu was her father. But who was her mother? She did not have a mother. Only a father and brothers. See, they have found a hole in the first story of Chintu ni Nambi and now filled it. Nambi got a mother, a woman who apparently rose from the sea. Her name was Namazi. In fact, Namazi was said to have brought all the water bodies on land. I have never heard of her because this story was buried. When Chirabo did not respond, Insuta carried on. Apparently, Namazi was so magnificent that when Gulu saw her, he was mesmerized. She gave him lots and lots of sun, including Walumbi, the bringer of death, Kiyukuzi, the borrower, but only one daughter, Nambi. Then one day, after years and years of being together, Namazi, without provocation, without explanation, got up and went back to the sea. She never came back. Gulu was so heartbroken. He never remarried. He brought up his children on his own. So, if the first woman came from the sea and returned to it, women belonged there. I like Namazi. I like that I came out of her. Focus trouble. She is a story. A story which aggravated our situation. They used her to link our original state to the sea. You don't realize, but Asians had an irrational fear of women, of the nature of women, that they would try anything to keep them under control. They supported the story by pointing to the sea. Apparently, both women and the sea were baffling, changeful. Today they are this, tomorrow they are that. How was the sea changeful? Water has no shape. It can be this. It can be that. Depending on where, where it flows. The sea is inconstant. It cannot be tamed. It does not yield to human cultivation. It cannot be owned. 
you cannot draw borders on an ocean. To the ancients, women belong to the sea like in marriage. Trouble nasheted because Asians, especially Ganda mills, were just too dumb for life. And to them, land belonged with men. Land was tame. It did as it was told. They tilled it, they dropped seeds into it, and a few months later, they harvested. They divided and owned it, like in marriage, exactly. That is how women were stopped from owning land wealth. Stories have such power you cannot imagine. That one turned women into migrants on land. Since then, women have been ruthless, moved not just across places, but clans, tribes, nations, and even races. Makumbi has a PhD from Lancaster University and has taught creative writing and English as a senior lecturer at several universities in Britain. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Never, 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 never.